This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 326, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another session of The Daniel Glass Show here on the Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. And uh, happy to be back with you today. I have the honor and privilege to be talking about one of my favorite drummers of all time, we're going to do another deconstruction here. You may have heard my deconstruction of Bill Haley's song, Rock Around the Clock, in an earlier session. Today, we're instead of deconstructing a song, we're going to de- deconstruct a player. Uh, in this case, a drummer. Uh, that drummer is Earl Palmer. And... Um, you know, but before I say anything else, I, I want to say that I'm, you know, happy that more and more people are becoming familiar with Earl's name and his legacy of of recordings. Earl passed away in 2008, and even up to that time, although maybe people had heard his name, he was certainly not as well known as sidemen like Hal Blaine, for example, or uh, maybe Buddy Harmon down in Nashville, um, and. Uh, you know, that it's, it's a shame because the, the side men that came up in the early years of rock and roll, well, really side men in general, but I think today side men have a much better shake. Uh, you know, people that, that play on artists records today are recognized for their contributions. They're, they're glorified, they're lauded, they're written about, uh, they're, Hey, they're listed on the record. And of course, back, uh, I think it was up until 1972, um, there was no sort of requirement that any record company list the players uh, who played on a particular record, and often they didn't, they didn't want people to know. Of course, sort of the most famous example of that is in the 1960s, the band The Monkees, you know, who were purported to be, quote-unquote, a real band, and, and they actually wanted to be a real band, but um, the powers that be in, in, you know, in Hollywood uh, forbade them from playing their own instruments on the records, and this happened everywhere. Um, and of course, uh, those great musicians in the background who did play on those records got scant or no credit. And those great musicians included uh, our, our, our topic today, the subject of, of today's deconstruction, Earl Palmer. Now, Earl, you know, like I said, maybe you've heard his name in conjunction with a few different things. He played on some different records, or he was on the theme from Mission Impossible, or he played on Tutti Frutti by Little Richard. Um, Earl Palmer's importance is so great that I would go so far as to call him the architect of rock and roll drumming. And, you know, maybe that sounds like too great of a, of a title to give this man, but I'm going to show you today just how I arrived at that conclusion. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not something I just made up, uh, in, in really looking at the 1950s in particular and the 1960s, but really the earliest years of rock and roll and putting those years under a microscope, I've just uh, found that everywhere you turn, there's Earl and he's the guy that's, you know, playing those elements uh, that that turned rock and roll, that, that made rock and roll its own style. And if you, if you listen to, uh, again, the, uh, the Bill Haley uh, deconstruction of, of Rock Around the Clock that I did, you'll, I talk a lot about the early years of rock and roll, but just to review in its, in its earliest period, uh, before it was even given the name rock and roll, the disc jockey Alan Freed started calling this type of music that was coming out in the early 50s, um, which really was rhythm and blues music for the most part, with elements of country and some jazz and, and other things sort of thrown in and Frankenstein together. But what he called it and what made it different than what came before it is that he gave it the name The Big Beat. And why did he do this? Because the beat was really the thing that was changing on these records more than anything else. The beat was something new, and there were a lot of different aspects of this uh, that we can talk about in this time period. The first would be a, a strong sense of backbeat, that strong two and four on the snare, all the way through a song. That was something new. Um, the fact that the swung eighth notes that had been a part of 
uh, of course, swing music and then rhythm and blues music of the 19, you know, 30s and 40s uh, were shifting to straight eighth notes. That was another element. Um, bass drum variations. The bass drum pattern in popular music was moving off of a straight four on the floor, which it had been for several decades. Uh, and there was starting to be some variations. That was also associated with early rock and roll. And finally, um, you know, with straight eighth grooves come 16th note fills. Uh, if you're playing shuffles or swung eights, you're going to play triplet fills. If you're starting to play straight eights, then you're more than likely to play 16th note fills. Guess what? Who was the guy, you know, and oh, and I should add, if you're going to play 16th note fills, then the more than likely the way you're going to come out of those is to hit a heavy crash on one or a heavy hit on one. And the whole idea of playing a crash, quote unquote, on beat one after a fill uh, became all of these were elements associated with the years of early rock. And uh, guess who we can find recordings of doing those things if not first, certainly early on, and certainly on a lot of hit records, gee, Earl Palmer. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna break this down and we're gonna dig into a lot of that stuff. Now, were there other drummers in the 1950s that were involved with the formation of rock and did a lot of these elements that I just described that that played them on different artists' records? Absolutely. You know, you got you got the guys in Chicago working with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. You got the guys in the Northeast. Uh, working with Atlantic Records. Um, you've got the guys out west. Um, you've got, you know, elements happening in, in Texas and, and in Memphis. Um, you, you know, you've got rockabilly happening and, and, you know, you've got a lot of things going on at this time period. So Earl was not the only guy doing this. But again, my contention is that, um, you know, few people in the studios were thinking outside the box like Earl Palmer was during this time period. And, Another really important factor is that Earl played on so many hits from so many artists, particularly if we're just talking about early rock and roll, um, really you can break down his career into two periods. From, say, 1949 to 1957, he was based in New Orleans, although he did start to come out to California. But in 57, he moved to California, and then for the rest of his career was in Los Angeles. And between the number of hits he had in both periods and what he was doing in both eras, sort of pre-1957 and post-1957, um, the, the amount of influence of, you know, of, of ubiquitousness of pop music that you would hear, or rock music that you hear on the radio um, during those decades, all through the 50s and certainly into the 60s, uh, Earl was on those records. And those were the records that were being heard all over the world, um, you know, by uh, the British Invasion guys and by the other early rock and rollers who came a few years later than Earl and by the, you know, the Wrecking Crew. Earl was was in L.A. prior to the Wrecking Crew and by the time someone like Hal Blaine got to California, Earl was already well-established and laying down a lot of groundwork that then um, the rest of those guys would pick up on. So we'll certainly talk more about all these things, uh, but, you know, the, as the big beat becomes rock and roll, in my opinion, um, you could make a strong case that Earl was the architect of what you know you and I do every time we sit down at a drum set and we go to chat to to chat and we learn that at our first lesson or that's the first beat we learn. You know, <laughs> half of half of the elements in that groove. All of the elements in that groove, really, you could say were pioneered by Earl Palmer. So it's no joke to say that Earl was indeed the architect of rock and roll drumming. So uh, before we get into Earl's life and his career, I just want to speak from a per- my, my personal relationship with Earl. Um, I you know, lived in Los Angeles for almost 20 years, and um, I've been based in New York now since... Uh, 2010. But, um, you know, a lot of the interviews I did were with, uh, that I've done, I've done easily 60 interviews that I've documented, uh, let alone the hangs and, and, you know, um, conversations and, and et cetera, et cetera. I've, I've had with, with historical figures and great drummers and musicians and record collectors and all these kind of folks. But, um, Earl was was one of the guys I contacted early on, and I did several long interviews with him. There, uh, I need to get them all digitized. There's most of them are on cassette. I, I hate to say, but um, I need to get those 
cleaned up and then perhaps I can, I can post them. But, uh, I did several interviews with Earl and then we, you know, we just kind of became friends after a while and all the way up until his death, um, I would see him, I'd talk to him on the phone, I'd call him and ask him questions and sort of, um, you know, the highlight of my, one of the highlights of my entire drumming career, uh, came, uh, probably a couple of years before he passed, um, my band Royal Crown Review was playing an event. I forget it, if it was um, it was in uh, like Banning or uh, w- one of those uh, sort of communities near Palm Springs. And Earl happened to be that's where he retired to in his final years. He um, you know he he lived out there with his his last wife uh, Jeline, and uh, he came to my gig. And I have a photograph of myself with Earl Palmer. Um, with a copy of his album Drumsville. It was one of his two solo records that he released in the 19th, I believe in the 1960s. Um, and, and there it is, you know, and it's, it, it was such an honor for me to have Earl Palmer at my gig. You know, it's like, I don't even know where to begin. So what I will do is, is not begin there. I will begin with Earl and, um, Oh, and I should mention one other thing before I go on that album Drumsville, uh, which I mentioned, which I had on vinyl and that Earl signed for me. Um, I use that as the model. The cover is just a photo of a drum set. And I use that as the model for my book, The Ultimate History of Rock and Roll Drumming. So uh, I took a 1960 Rogers kit that I that I had, a red, beautiful red sparkle kit, and uh, photographed it exactly the same way that it was on the cover of, of, of Earl's album. There's no picture, there's no drummer in the picture on either record. It's just an amazing picture of a drum set. So anyway, um, so onward. Uh, Earl, let's talk a little bit about his upbringing. What's amazing about Earl Palmer, he died, he was born in 1924. He died in 2008. And his life and his career spans such an incredible scope of American musical history, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. Um, he, by the time he was five years old, he was a child performer. He was born into a family of, of performers. Um, and, you know, if you've ever been in New Orleans, you see child performers all over the streets. I remember one of the trips that I was there, uh, walking down, you know, uh, somewhere in the French Quarter, and there's a, a little kid probably no more than eight years old, tap dancing in the street. And I was thinking this was Earl Palmer at the age of five, tap dancing in the street. Um, he, he became a, a traveling star and, uh, I mean, star, maybe not as big, say, as of a child star as Buddy Rich. Um, but again, he was poor and black and living in New Orleans, which was not sort of the, did not have the cool factor that it does today. I mean, certainly it was an amazing hotbed of musical activity, but, um, you know, it, it was far away from, from the, the mainstream of, of hub and bub, uh, that were happening in the United States, I'd say in the 1930s. Anyway, he has this career as a child star. And, you know, at that time he began to get his drumming together and he apprenticed with a lot of the great, um, brass band bass drummers who were, you know, if you know anything about the history of New Orleans and the classic brass bands, it was the bass drummer who was almost like the most important player in the band. Uh, We don't think of marching band bass drummers as really doing much except playing one and three and just sort of keeping a beat that people can walk to in time. But the the bass drummers in a New Orleans brass band are are heralded and respected as the key figures. And um, in my book, The Ultimate... uh, Sorry, in, in, in my book, The Roots of Rock Drumming, the one I did with Steve Smith, the book of uh, interviews of early rock drummers, of which Earl is included. There's an interview with Earl in that book. But um, uh, an, another of the interviews is um, uh, Idris Muhammad, also from New Orleans, who talks a lot more in that interview about literally, you know, running through the legs of bass drummers and bothering them because he was just fascinated by the bass drum. And I think New Orleans drummers and their relationship to the bottom end of the bass drum in general, I mean, certainly Earl Palmer being a prime example, but many other guys like Idris, like Smokey Johnson, uh, like Zigaboo Modaliste, um, you know, from different eras who have emerged, have that thing going on with the bass drum. It's deep. It's a deep, deep pocket. So, 
New Orleans and the bass drum has a has a, a deep relationship, and we'll talk more about that as we as we continue to roll through this. But anyway, Earl. Um, you know, he apprentices with some of these guys. And again, in my in the uh, interview that we did with Earl in the uh, Roots of Rock Drumming, you can read more details about this. Also, I should mention there's a terrific, terrific biography of Earl Palmer called Backbeat, Earl Palmer's Story, uh, which was written by Earl and Tony Sherman. I cannot recommend this book enough if you want to learn more about Earl Palmer. But, but again, the way I sort of talk about all the eras that his life you can lay them over the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. I mean, he was doing important stuff in most of those decades and he is a reflection of the world around him. So you learn in reading this book and his story, you know, just such a huge perspective on American music and American history. It's, it's really quite something. And T- Tony Sherman did a terrific job on that book, uh, editing it, editing it all together. And there's a lot of great notations, footnotes, uh, where Tony fills in where, where Earl's talking about the Treme, the neighborhood that he, he grew up in and, and a lot of his other experiences. And what I also love about that book and what I loved about Earl is that he didn't sugarcoat anything. He was, he was, uh, he was not to be messed with. He was a sweet, wonderful, warm guy who graciously shared a lot of stuff. But at the same time, he was, uh, he had been through a lot of shit and he had been, you know, the subject of living and growing up in a very, very racist climate, which was New Orleans at that time. It's the reason why he left New Orleans, which we'll probably get into in part two of this um, of this Earl Palmer story, because there's too much to talk about in one podcast. Uh, but, you know, he, um, he didn't pull punches. And when you read the book, it's like, it's pretty frank, you know, and, and, uh, and Earl was also, uh, you know, he, he lived the rock and roll lifestyle, shall we say, I won't go too much into all that, but he was the real deal. He really, really lived it. And, in every possible sense of the word and is a worthy of you taking a few extra minutes out of your life to read it, to read this book about him. Uh, and it's really in his voice. So uh, again, Earl, uh, it's called backbeat Earl Palmer's story with Earl and Tony Sherman cannot recommend it enough. There'll be a link to it in the show notes of this page where you can find it. So um, Earl does a stint in the U S army in the late forties. Uh, you know, not much better treatment there of African-American soldiers than there was of African-Americans, period, in New Orleans, African-American musicians and performers. Um, and, you know, one thing about Earl that always impressed me and inspired me was how tough of a guy he was. He kept on going in the face of that. He was proud in the face of that treatment. Um, you you get a sense of that when you read the book and when you, you know, when obviously when you met him, if you had the chance to meet him, when I had the chance to meet him, uh, he just was a righteous human being. Um, and what he had to overcome, you know, if you, if you, for those of us who are making a living today as a musician or have made a living as a musician in the last 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, uh, really we, we've had it easy because guys like Earl, you know, broke, broke the mold, uh, you know, at a time when musicians in general were one step up from criminals, um, were treated as such, were not respected for what they did. Um, you know, he held his head high and he, uh, he stepped it up and he, and, and we have his recorded legacy as proof of that. So, um, he gets out of the army and he goes back to new Orleans and I'm not sure if he had a GI bill, I think the book probably talks about it, but he's able to go to the, to the Grunewald School of Music in New Orleans. And at that time, he learned how to read, which was a really smart move on his part, because as he emerged more and more as a studio musician, and especially when he went off to L.A. in 1957, those skills came in extremely handy. And um, guess what, kids? You know, uh, learn how to read music. <laughs> That's what I say. Someone who has made a living as a musician for 25 years plus, you know, it's worth taking a little bit of extra time. You don't don't have to be able to read Frank Zappa's The Black Page, but you need to know, uh, you need to know the basics. It will open up massive vistas of income uh, opportunities at, at, uh, at, at making income. And if your goal, again, is to make a living, that involves money. 
so he, he learns to read. I'm sorry, I'm deviating so much here, but I'm, I'm trying to stick to the, to the script. Um, and in the late 1940s, his drumming skills are good enough and his chops are good enough and his reading is good enough that he joins Dave Bartholomew's studio band. Now, Dave Bartholomew was a uh, African-American trumpet player in New Orleans at the time. There, there had been in New Orleans a... Um, a strong history. Obviously, it was a great musical town, um, but you know we tend to think only of New Orleans in certain eras. We think of it in the earliest period of jazz. We think of it in terms of you know Little Richard and fifties rock, and then maybe the, the the meters. But all during the nineteen thirties and forties of the swing era and the rhythm and blues era, um, New Orleans had fantastic bands, artists, uh, very great musical scene going on. New Orleans has always had a great musical scene going on. And what's great, if you go to New Orleans today and you spend a few days there and you go to Frenchman Street and you walk around the quarter and you go up to the Maple Leaf and, you know, you, you experience, uh, you experience a lot of music in New Orleans, which is what you better do when you go down there. I mean, it, it's hard to avoid, but go seek it. Uh, what you'll see is every one of those decades on display in some way or another. And that's what's so great is that all that music is still living in New Orleans and coming forward, you know, pushing forward. And maybe I'll do a whole thing about New Orleans, uh, a session here about New Orleans. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not the world's foremost expert on New Orleans, but I've studied it. I've been there quite a bit. I've hung there. Um, you know, I know Stanton is a good friend of mine and, and, uh, a lot of the drummers of New Orleans, and so it's. I'll give you my impressions. That let, let's put it that way. Um, although I, I will not claim to, to any to be any New Orleans expert, but um, Earl joins Dave Bartholomew's band, and there is a great scene. And um, they set up shop at a place called J and M Recording, which was a studio. Um, today, sadly, it is a laundromat, but they have managed to. <laughs> um, if you if you go in there, I think there are some photos and stuff on the wall. I went in there one time. There's like a plaque on the sidewalk or on the wall out front. It's uh, it it was run by the engineer. There was a guy named Cosmo Matassa. Cosimo is how you would pronounce it, but Cosmo is well, Cosimo is is what. Uh, is how it's spelled, but Cosmos, is how everybody talks about it. He was an Italian, um, from Italian American roots. Uh, and, um, I actually, uh, had the chance while he was alive. I interviewed Cosmo Matassa at his family's grocery store, which was in the, uh, in the French quarter. And he was running the grocery store. He, uh, it was amazing. And it was amazing to sit down with him. Um, you know, J and M recording is where, uh, it, it was a studio and it's where, Dave Bartholomew was sort of the house orchestra there, and that's where uh, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Smiley Lewis, uh, Shirley and Lee, uh, Don and Dewey, um, uh, Lloyd Price, um, you know, the where much of the great uh, new, the first great New Orleans rhythm and blues and rock and roll was recorded there, and um, you know. The studio owner was white, but he was very hip to the sounds that were going on, was very open to um, the black community, and as a result, you know, you've, you've got these, these great hits. What was interesting is there were no labels in New Orleans that were interested in putting this music out. So most of what um, was recorded by uh, uh, Cosmo Matassa at J&M was sent to Specialty Records and other labels that were based in California who were, you know, saw that there was a market for this. But in the South, no. No record labels down there, and certainly not interested in putting out uh, black music. Um, another interesting studio owner who recorded black music for export was uh, Sam Phillips at Sun Records in Memphis. And we think of Sun Records as being the epicenter of rockabilly, um, which is mostly white artists, rockabilly recordings like uh, Carl Perkins, Elvis, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison. Um, but uh, before he signed Elvis and those guys, Sun Records, Sam was recording black artists, including people like um, Helen Wolf uh, and others. And again, exporting, the, you know, that's where the talent was. And he would export those records to other labels up in Chicago, out in California, and they would get released there. And that's how some of those guys, you know, 
first had their taste or the world had the first taste of of their music so uh these were these were very interesting times and the race relations and you know these southern cities a lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on so back to earl palmer um what was interesting about the dave bartholomew band is that unlike most studio situations of the time meaning the 1950s they were given the musicians themselves were given the freedom to um suggest on the recordings and to offer ideas and again i you know today that's not really such an unusual thing uh studio musicians uh you know particularly the wrecking crew is sort of the most popular example but you've got the a team in nashville you've got um, the the Funk Brothers at Motown. You've got Stax. You know those that house band. Uh, all those guys were known for contributing a lot to the recordings that they played on. Um, but this was a very new thing, particularly in the in the early fifties and even the late forties, which is really when Earl starts. He starts with Dave Bartholomew. The first recording we're going to listen to is nineteen forty nine. So um, he records. Uh, the, the first recording we're going to play is a Fats Domino recording from 1949, and it's a very early one for everybody. And um, Earl does something on this record that, let's just start at the beginning, you know, right off the bat, and he uh, lays down some strong backbeats on two and four, uh, not just at the end of the tune, but but he lays them down through pretty much as soon as the intro is done, he shuffles on the intro. As soon as the vocal comes in, he starts knocking those backbeats on two and four. Now, um, you know, uh, again, the, uh, um, the idea of backbeats on two and four is something that's very common today, but in 1949, it was very unusual, and there was maybe a couple of reasons. The first is that recording conditions were so primitive that drummers, you know, since the beginning of recorded music, um, in terms of jazz and swing, had not been able to play that consistent boom, I mean, it was very rare that you would hear that. Um, because it could cause technical problems with the recording equipment because the 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 um, the attack was too intense. Um, and, you know, if you think about a live situation, they didn't have um, electrified instruments. The electric bass didn't really show up until 1950. The electric guitar had only really come into play in the 1940s, and they didn't really start distorting it yet until the early 50s when Link Ray, the famous uh, early rock guitar player, literally took a screwdriver and started stabbing holes in the speaker cone, and that's how we get the first distortion on a guitar. But 1949 was still a couple years before all of that, uh, you still had upright bass, more than likely would have been on some of these sessions. Um, although I'm sure they switched to electric quickly once it showed up because you could add a lot more bottom end and make that bottom end bigger. Anyway, let's take a listen to this. It's the Fat Man by Fats Domino. Um, 1949 or 1950, I'm not exactly sure. But check it out and you'll hear, not that loud, but consistent backbeats once the vocal comes in. So, the fat man, Earl Palmer, Fats Domino, they're all young, young punks, and uh, Earl's got some attitude in that shuffle. It's a new, he's got a new attitude. And again, as I had mentioned earlier about sidemen offering their own contributions, um, you know, typically in a studio setting prior to this time, because you you had very limited uh, number of tracks it was expensive for the studio time. They were hiring the musicians. Oftentimes these were new artists. So somebody was coming out of pocket to make this happen. Uh, but even established artists, the way a session would work is that you had, you know, it was a three hour block and generally you'd record three hour, three songs in the three hours. And you had different, 
divisions of labor. So you'd have a songwriter who'd write the song. You'd have a musician or group musicians who'd play the song. You'd have an arranger who would arrange that song for those musicians. You'd have a producer, you know, who'd put the whole thing together. And then, of course, you'd have the artist, which was usually a singer. And, you know, you... Uh, you would do it all live. There were no, no, no opportunity to overdub because the technology didn't allow it. And so you would just hammer it out. And the goal of the studio was to simply capture the artist's performance in the best possible setting. So it was sort of an ideal example of what the artist would be doing live anyway. And of course, you still had 78s at this point, which limited the amount of space that could that a song could be, the length a song could be. So, you know, three, three and a half minutes or whatever it was, um, that was it. So it was very kind of strict conditions. Everybody knew their job. Well, 1949, Dave Bartholomew and the house band at J&M Recording now start to change those rules a little bit. So let's look at another tune from, this one's from three years later, 1952, and this is Lottie Miss Claudie by Lloyd Price. Lloyd Price was another up-and-coming New Orleans singer uh, of that time, and um, what we're going to hear in this recording really is that shuffle feel that, of course, had been an integral part of 1940s rhythm and blues, Lewis Jordan sort of moving forward, but Earl's taking a more aggressive approach. So we've already heard sort of that um, that heavy backbeat. Now we're going to hear that backbeat again, and it's sort of moving towards what was going to become what we what we know today as as a 12/8 feel, um, which is you know the idea of and of course that feel comes out of so that idea of taking a shuffle and adding that middle triplet in what you're doing in the hi-hat or the ride cymbal. So this is not quite to a 12-8 yet, and the 12-8 was around, but, you know, um, let's listen to how Earl approaches Lottie Miss Claudie. The shuffle's getting more fierce, and what I love is that he does this cool little, I don't know if it's a, a drag or um, a, a five-stroke roll to get him in uh, at the beginning of each phrase. It's really hip. And again, a very unusual and and kind of distinct uh, take on a very standard groove from Earl Palmer. So, Lottie Miss Claudie, 1952, Lloyd Price. Well, Next up, 1953. This is a tune called I Hear You Knockin' by Smiley Lewis. And uh, Smiley Lewis was another New Orleans singer. He had a very distinctive voice, which you'll hear in a minute. Uh, And, of course, this song, some of you may know that Fats Domino had a hit with this later on. And, of course, in the 1970s, Dave Edmonds had a big hit with it. I hear you knocking. And Dave Edmonds did it more as a rock tune, but here it's a full-blown 12-8. So... Now we can hear um, Earl's just how he approaches this 12-8 groove. And it's big, and the backbeat is really fat. You know, this is only a couple, three years after 1949. By this point, the backbeat is established. Everyone is doing it um, on, on a lot of records, and Earl is sort of the king of it in terms of the records that he's putting out. Other people are hearing him and, and following suit. And, of course, the 12-8, let's just talk for a little bit about that. You know, the, the 12-8 is almost like the bread-and-butter groove of 1950s rock and roll. You know, we think of the piano player. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, we call those ice cream changes, a one six two five. And, uh, um, you know, so many songs utilize this groove. Um and, and Earl himself recorded it many, 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 many times over the decade. Uh, Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill, of course, the biggest example. And I, I still remember, you know, that um, for those of you who are of my age, uh, who, who grew up in the 1970s, um, you know, the, the show Happy Days. And that song was used because every time uh, uh, Richie Cunningham, the, the main character, kind of hit it with a girl or, you know, got romantic or whatever, he'd come down the stairs singing, I found my thrill, right? So, you know, Blueberry Hill, 
O'Donna by Richie Valens, or sometimes it's just called Donna uh, by Richie Valens. That's also Earl Palmer. That was from when he moved out to California. Uh, but another classic 12-8. Of course, other songs, not with Earl Palmer on them, but The Great Pretender by The Platters, uh, I Only Have Eyes for You by The Flamingos, and I could, you know, there's probably a list of 9,000 songs in the 1950s that use this groove. But the 12-8 really came into its own, and, you know, Earl was, in my opinion, leading the pack on that groove. The next tune I want to play for you guys is uh, Tipitina by P- Professor Longhair. And uh, this is now, we're same year, 1953. And Tipitina is one of the next few songs we're going to play where one thing that Earl did while he was in New Orleans was to take some of those New Orleans street beat type of things uh, that, you know, again, we hear a lot today and you know, people like Stanton talk about them and Johnny Vidakovich, and um, we see them demonstrate a lot uh, from, you know, Zigaboo and, and all these different drummers. But um, again, Earl was like the first guy to really take what was going on in New Orleans with those street bands, with the funkiness of those brass bands and how they took uh, that that standard marching concept of a marching band and funked it up made it hip right and you know that was again if you go down to new orleans that's all around you you're going to hear that everywhere you turn but in 1953 um you know nobody nobody in mainstream america had heard any of this stuff so earl sneaks these funky street beats into a whole variety of recordings that that we're going to hear. Some of them were, you know, bigger hits than others, but all of the ones I'm mentioning here have become uh, I- important listening if you want to understand about, you know, key must-listen-to tunes if you want to understand about New Orleans rhythm and blues and, and rock and roll. So Tipitina is the first tune, and it's, it's by a guy named Professor Longhair. And again, if you go to New Orleans... These days, Professor Longhair is, I mean, obviously he passed away quite a few years ago, I think probably in the 80s at some point. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to that. But, um, you know, he's legendary. And um, Dr. John and the Meters and, you know, all of these guys that came up, the Nevilles, and, you know, they, he was there. He was the local hometown hero piano player who did a lot of amazing things. And one of the cool things that he did um, was he would play these kind of funky piano grooves and they would sort of have this so that sort of bass bass line, rumba bass line, they call it a rumba bass line. And of course, landing on beat four, which is also a, a big part of the New Orleans sound. So um, anyway, this particular tune, Tipitina, has this interesting sort of take on it. Let's slow it down. So you have this offbeat kind of feel on the hi-hat and then this uh, thing going on which is just very much like a street beat so let's dig it uh professor longhair tipitina 1953 earl palmer As time goes by, Earl begins to put more of these New Orleans-style grooves into what he's doing. And the next track I want to play for you guys is called uh, Every Time I Hear That Mellow Saxophone, otherwise known as Mellow Saxophone, but that's the full title. 1955 now, 
And this is by a guy that is very unknown outside of New Orleans, uh, Roy Montrell. But this song is a staple among rhythm and blues bands and bands that play that style. Uh, I played it with this band, a Japanese band called The Travelers that I produced and uh, toured with for quite a while um, in the... I guess it was the early 2000s. I had a great time with them. And they, you know, boy, they were really into this stuff and they nailed it. They really had it down. So, mellow, you know, that mellow saxophone. Of course, there's a lot of honking sax on all this music. The honking saxophone also would become an integral part of 50s rock and roll. I talk a lot more about that in uh, in my Rock Around the Clock uh, uh, deconstruction. But uh, this song is about a saxophone and it is anything but mellow. I think it's kind of uh, uh, an ironic twist to call it a mellow saxophone. Anyway, so what Earl does on this, he ups the groove, and now it's not so laid back, and there's no cymbals on it, and it's got this, it's got that rumba beat now on every bar. And the, the, the riff on the sax is super syncopated, so it's like... Really cool. And then what happens is, and this is another thing that you see a lot in the 1950s, is that is that Earl switches up feels. So on sort of the chorus part of the song, he kicks it up a notch, or the whole band kicks it up a notch, and they get up into that shuffle. So now Earl's kind of combining the street beat feel with the killer shuffle. And at this point, nobody could touch Earl Palmer's shuffle with backbeat. Nobody in that rock and roll kind of way. It's just undeniable and incredibly danceable, of course. So um, let's check out a couple of minutes, or a few seconds rather, of Every Time I Hear That Mellow Saxophone, Roy Montrell from 1955. I want a mumbo's mama do my number Hold my baby all this summer Every time I hear that mellow saxophone I want to rip it, rock it, really bop it Flip it, bop it, Davy Crockett Every time I hear that mellow saxophone I wanna rock, rock, rock Roll, roll, roll Pop, pop, pop Cool. How burning is that? All right. So, in keeping with this sort of street beat conversation that we're having, New Orleans street beat, Earl really brings everything together in 1957 with Fats Domino, who he's continued to play with since 1949. So they've been, he's been doing all of Fats' sessions. And Fats, at this point, is a, a, a national star. And some of these tunes that we've heard so far, um, most of them have been from, you know, local New Orleans bands that maybe hit it on the R&B charts. But now, um, I'm Walking is uh, going to break out into the uh, mainstream pop charts. And Earl opens the tune, probably many of you know this opening, he opens the tune with another street beat that's just super cool. It's got this funky bass drum thing going on in it. And then when he kicks into the main groove of the tune, it's like... You know, again, not it's it's probably the least sophisticated of these three tunes that, that I've played you with the street beat, but it's still got that vibe, and now it's... It's it's not so imposing to the to the mainstream ear of white America that they aren't getting what's cool and special about this. And of course, with Fats's song on top of it, uh, it it's a winning combination. And uh, so let's check it out. Uh, I'm walking Fats Domino, 1956, Earl on the Street Beat intro. I'm walking. Yeah, the So around this same time, that the last tune I'm walking, 1956, um, around this time, a new artist enters Earl Palmer's life. And I should say Earl Palmer is there to enhance the career of this next performer, Little Richard, who gets uh, starts to record at J&M around 1955. And of course, Little Richard's first big hit was Tutti Frutti. And if you read Earl's book or heard his interviews, um, it's a very pivotal record for him because he notices um, something. He records the tune, and of course, 
Tutti Frutti becomes a huge hit, again, nationwide. Uh, Little Richard bursts on the scene with a new kind of intensity, a new kind of uh, 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 craziness on the edge, I'm about to lose it kind of vibe that really takes rock and roll up a notch. And, you know, is, you know, of course, Little Richard's look uh, with the makeup and the crazy hair. Uh, By the way, Little Richard had uh, fashioned himself after a... uh, Another singer named Estralita, who was a man who was almost sort of a transvestite, uh, would sort of dress very sharp, but would looked almost feminine and was a little bit on the gender bending vibe, maybe a David Bowie kind of, a, um, you know, uh, uh, we don't know, is this a man or a woman uh, kind of a thing. But uh, so, you know, little, little Richard's vibe all around was shocking to people. And of course, the music had this new level of intensity. And a big part of that intensity was Earl Palmer. So Tutti Frutti, let's take a listen to a little bit about that. And what I should say is that, you know, just like with Fats Domino, uh, Earl Palmer and Little Richard were a a great combination. And uh, Earl never went on the road with these artists, but he played on just about every one of their recordings uh, and certainly on all the hits. And I would say that that was the case with Little Richard, except for one important exception, which we'll talk about shortly. So here it is, big debut. Um... Tutti Frutti, and we'll talk a little bit about what Earl noticed on this groove and what change he made after we hear the tune. Here it is, Tutti Frutti. What you notice is that Earl Palmer, like on so many other recordings we've listened to, on Tutti Frutti played a shuffle. But what he noticed in listening back to this recording, and he talks about it in the book, he talked about it in interviews with me, is that he was lis- he was listening to Little Richard's left hand on that piano. And Little Richard, you know, he was such a um, aggressive piano player that even though Tutti Frutti's really, you could say it's a boogie-woogie type of tune, he was playing that thing really instead of a shuffle, he was playing so on the next big tune that they did, which is Long Tall Sally, the following year, 1956, Earl starts moving more in that direction with his cymbal pattern. I don't know whether he's on the hi-hat or the ride or both, but now we're going to listen to Long Tall Sally, and you're going to hear that the the subdivision is starting to move from a swung eighth to a straight eighth note. And of course, with that backbeat in there, unbelievable. So let's listen to a few seconds of Long Tall Sally, Little Richard. Here we go. Gonna tell and Mary about Uncle John. He claimed he has a music, but he's having a lot of fun. Oh, baby. Yes, baby. Woo, baby. Little Richard, as I said, exploded on the scene. That particular song, Long Tall Sally, ridiculous groove from Little Richard, ridiculous, uh, sorry, from Earl Palmer, ridiculous vocals from Little Richard. And, you know, now we could see the influence of not only the song, but the groove, because Long Tall Sally in the early years of the Beatles' career was one of their show-stopping numbers. And, you know, again, well, there's a lot to be said about the Beatles, but people tend to forget that even though they wrote Many of the greatest songs, Lennon McCartney, George Harrison, um, they added so much to the, to the catalog of great 20th century popular music. Their first few albums were almost entirely cover tunes of 1950s uh, rhythm and blues, rockabilly, early rock and roll, girl group music. Um, you know, they, they were just paying tribute to the music that had influenced them, that the artists that they felt were important. And certainly Little Richard was right up there. Uh, their version of Long Tall Sally kicks ass. Ringo does some of the most amazing drumming at the end of it that, in my opinion, he did in the, in the early career of the Beatles. He goes into this cool triplet thing between the cymbals and the, and the snare. But that's for yet another session. But there it is. So um, another little little Richard song I want to focus on here is again from one more year down the line, 1957, and this is Lucille. And now, you know, again, this is sort of our third look at Little Richard, each song from a, 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 a one year farther down the road. And, um, and now when you listen to the pattern that Earl is playing, he has solidified his straight eighth vibe and he's playing a combination he's playing it all on the snare drum so it's really a combination of a street beat and a rock groove imagine if you took your hand off the hi-hat 
where it was playing eighth notes and put it on the snare, that's basically what you'd get. And the production on this thing is mean, and the groove is so aggressive. And of course, Little Richard's screaming vocals are incredible. So um, check it out how now the straight eighth groove by 1957, as laid down by Earl Palmer, is really, you know, reached what we could what we would consider it to be today. All right, dig it, Lucille. So I now want to shift the focus for the remainder of this session in talking about some other innovations that Earl made, particularly during his time in New Orleans. And, and what we're going to talk about are fills. Um, you know, so much of the drumming that he did, you know, backbeats, uh, uh, going from swung eights to straight eights, uh, all of these things um, are are, uh, uh, you know, were important, but what he also did in terms of a drummer playing fills is incredibly important and, and a few other, uh, noticeable, uh, elements. Um, and, and not only fills, but variations in the bass drum, which we had talked about earlier. So let's start in 1954, looking at fills with a tune called jam up by an artist named Tommy Ridgely. He's a, he was another new Orleans stalwart, had a very long career down there, uh, well-respected on the R&B scene, but never really, you know, became famous beyond those circles. But um, when I was down on an early trip to New Orleans, uh, I I went into the, the, they have the New Orleans Music Factory down there is probably the world's greatest record store. And I used to, every time I go to New Orleans, I just go in there. They have these listening stations, literally about, you know, and, and you'd think, oh, listening stations, that's so old news. But when you go there, what you learn at the listening stations, you end up spending like $200 on, on CDs walking out of there. Um, so I was on the listening stations. They literally have like a whole wall of, of six CD changers, <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, like, you know, 10 people can stand side by side all listening to many different CDs and they're all full and they're all amazing. Uh, so... Uh, I'm, I'm at the New Orleans Music Factory, and I'm listening to um, this this band, random band. It's called uh, it's Tommy Ridgely. The tune is called Jam Up. And I'm blown away by the groove, and I end up bringing it to Royal Crown Review. We ended up recording it, and it ended up, it ended up becoming our opening song for quite a number of years. Um, we're going to hear a little bit of that right now. But what I want to focus on is going into the solo, Earl Busts, like the most unbelievable fill, this triplet fill that's like from Mars. And, you know, you would think in 1954 that it just was not cool for a drummer to do something like that. But again, because of the environment he was in, because he was a studio musician who was allowed to offer up his own interpretations, you know, all of these things, by the way, these different grooves, these street beats, uh, these unusual variances, things that drummers were not generally encouraged to do, probably prevented from doing in most places. Certainly, you know, uh, these things just didn't, weren't showing up on, on, on all kinds of records. Earl had the opportunity to do them and he executed them so well that they were successes and therefore became mainstream things that, that we drummers do all the time. So, but check out this fill. So we're talking about fills now. Check out this fill, 1954, jam up. All right, here we go. not blow your mind blows my mind every time i hear it not to mention the groove is just so tight and that's an instrumental tune which i love uh even though tommy originally was a vocalist but hey um that's just another example of a, of the studio band creating a hit under somebody else's name and getting no credit for it um all right so now we move up to 1956 and this is another little richard tune rip it up which uh, again was covered by a lot of artists um elvis presley covered this um, what you'll notice on Little Richard's version, again, he does kind of a cool street beady kind of snare drum thing on the verse. 
Uh, if you listen to Elvis's version, which was a much bigger hit because, of course, Elvis was white and, well, Elvis was Elvis. So, uh, But, you know, the fact that he was a Caucasian-American artist allowed him the opportunity to uh, be heard and to promote his records in ways that African-American artists uh, were often uh, limited or prohib- pre- prevented from doing at that time. But um, what I want to play for you is a little bit of a verse and then listen again to what he does when it goes into the solo. He does some just, it's like reckless. It's like, it almost is like he falls apart and loses the time, but he pulls it off. It's sort of like, uh, you know, a surfer that gets into a huge wave and it looks like they're going to wipe out about 10 times and then they end up making it through the barrel and popping out the other side. So, you know, this is really extreme sports, 1956 style. Uh, Rip it up. Little Richard, here's Earl Palmer going into the solo. And ball tonight. All right, another 1956 moment of extreme drumming from Earl Palmer now we're going to get into. This one is from uh, Lloyd Price. Remember we heard Lottie Miss Claudie, tune of his from from, uh, earlier in the 50s. And now uh, this tune is called I'm Glad, I'm Glad. It's like a gospel thing, a double-time gospel thing, which, of course, was very common in the black community and in the world of rhythm and blues in the 1950s. These fast double-time grooves, that kind of thing, um, start to become a part of rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And this is a prime example of that. So I want you guys to check this opening fill-out. It is insane. And by the way, I should mention, almost every one of these grooves and songs that I've talked about are transcribed, and I play them in my book, uh, the book I did with Zorro, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, um, which is all about 1940s and 50s R&B and includes a lot about Earl Palmer and a lot of about New Orleans and backbeats and all these things. So this groove is transcribed if you want to check it out. It's wicked. Here we go. The opening to I'm Glad, I'm Glad, Lloyd Price, 1956. Check it out. Man, that was so ridiculous. I need to hear that again. You guys want to hear that? We get, let's hear that again one more time. Here we go. Well, I, I got a couple more to go here. Um, well, actually, one more. And that is a tune that Earl recorded in 1957. Uh, Larry Williams is the artist. And this is a pretty big hit, Boney Maroney. The Beatles, uh, I believe, also covered this tune. And... Um, uh, another, another just example of fantastic uh, early rock and roll drumming. And now at this point, Earl's really stretching out, really taking his um, straight eighth and backbeat feel into new, you know, he's, he's pushing the envelope. He's like Chuck Yeager. He keeps getting a newer and faster supersonic plane and pushing the envelope and seeing what he can do with that. So what he does here is this record is loaded with 16th note fills and they're very interesting the way he places them. Uh, and you almost wouldn't notice it unless you were listening carefully, but it's sort of, um, on the chorus section of the song. And I just, I just love what, what Earl does here. He puts these little pieces of 16th note. And what you realize when you start to listen to Earl and how he used these 16th note fills is that when he would come back to the cymbal, he would hit it hard. Now, you know, at this time, cymbal companies weren't really putting designations of this was a ride symbol. This is a crash symbol. This is a swish symbol that had begun to some degree. Zildjian had started to do that already, but in the, you know, in the fifties, mostly these studio guys did not have a complicated setup. They, they had literally a three or four piece kit with one symbol that was mounted on the bass drum itself with an L bracket. And that was it because it wasn't about playing big fills around the toms at that time. Uh, because, again, we talked about some of the technical limitations with backbeats. It just, drummers kept it 
more in the pocket, you know? I mean, you'd had Gene Krupa and people like that who, you know, stepped it up, and that was sort of okay in the jazz world. But in the world of, of blues and rhythm and blues and, you know, that kind of stuff, you didn't really get too crazy with those fills until Earl Palmer. So on this tune, Boney Maroney, 1957, Earl stretches out, does these cool fills, and when he comes back to the cymbal, he whacks that thing a little harder, whacks that thing a little harder. And I think once this style of playing starts to come in and you know you come back to one more aggressively because you're playing so aggressively with this sort of rock and this new rock and roll groove uh that's when sort of drummers begin to 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 add a quote-unquote crash cymbal to their setup but even you know the early Beatles stuff you watch Ringo say you know on the Ed Sullivan show he didn't really have a designated ride and designated crash he had two cymbals one was a little bigger one was a little smaller they you know and he probably rode on both and crashed on both and that just that's just what guys did you know all the cymbals were generally thinner it wasn't really until the late 60s when rock got very heavy and really into the 70s that you see very heavy big ride cymbals so you could crash a ride cymbal and it would be fine you know it it was thin enough that you could get a nice crash sound out of it so um check this out bony maroney larry williams earl palmer on the drums 1957 16th note fills crashes on beat one dig it Well, we're going to wrap up this part one of our Earl Palmer deconstruction uh, with one final uh, footnote. And this actually, this footnote doesn't have to do with Earl Palmer. Um, Perhaps many of you are very familiar with the uh, Little Richard song, Keep a Knockin', right? Keep a knockin', but you can't come in. Great tune. And I've spoken a lot, and other people have as well, about how the intro for the song, the drum intro, which is a fantastic two-handed straight eighth like double barrel shotgun assault uh of 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 a of a lick um is is the um impetus for john bonham uh john bonham's intro to rock and roll and if you put the two side by side you can you can literally see how um you know Bonham literally just copped this opening, and that's that's where it is on on rock and roll. And and on my website, I have these things called the Drum History Minute, where they're little audio things, sort of like this. I did them at least ten years ago, fifteen years ago. So, uh, but they're they're cool, and you can find them on my website. And there is one a being the uh, keep a knock in with rock and roll. But the point I make here is that keep a knock in was not Earl Palmer, and a lot of people think it was because Earl had played on. Every other one of Little Richard's biggest hits. If you get the specialty box set of Little Richard, which has all the outtakes and all the hits, and you know it's it's one of those mega box sets, and it's a great one because you hear all the studio chatter in the background. They leave all that stuff in. Uh, you look on the list, and it's Earl Palmer, Earl Palmer, Earl Palmer, Earl Palmer. Like he's hitting everything except for Keep a Knockin', which the drummer was Charles Connor. Charles. Thankfully, is still with us. He lives out in Los Angeles. I've also interviewed Charles. And he told me the whole story behind this two-handed beat. He said Little Richard took him down to the train station and uh, had him listen to a train coming into the station. And he said, I want that at the beginning of this record. So Charles two-handed. And what you get is the intro to this song. Charles, although he's not on the studio sessions of Little Richard, he is on the um, he's he, he played in Little Richard's touring band, The Upsetters, and there's a lot of great footage of him uh, in the film The Girl Can't Help It. Uh, Little Richard was in a, one of the uh, famous uh, early rock and roll movies called Don't Knock the Rock. There's some great performances that Little Richard does there, and Charles Charles Connors there. Charles, what's cool about him, and I love him because he well, he's a great drummer, great drummer. And the Upsetters were a tremendous powerhouse of a band live, and sort of uh, you know before there was James Brown, there was there was uh, Little Richard and 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 the Upsetters. Uh, be- before there was uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, 
the soul music of the 60s before there was Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, all these bands, Cool and the Gang, they, it all stems from what Little Richard and, and people like Ike Turner uh, were doing at that time in the 1950s. They were real pioneers for this kind of show band style. So you'll see that if you go check out Little Richard uh, in these clips. But um, Charles was a left-handed drummer. He set up lefty just like me. So I love him for that alone. What's also cool, if you go look at these clips, I'll post a link to one in the show notes. He would lean on his knee. He was so cool. His backbeat hand is his right hand. He would lean down and he would let it sit on his leg. And he had a hi-hat. He had no cymbal on the hi-hat side. He only had one cymbal, just like I'm talking about. And he would just ride on that cymbal and just lean on his leg and play these backbeats. And he just was, he was the hippest, man. So check all that out. Charles Connor, great legendary drummer. Look him, read him. He's got interviews on the web. Greatest guy in the world. Um, and uh, that's it. So we talked about, a lot about Earl Palmer and Earl Palmer's influences. I hope you guys enjoyed this. We're going to come back next week with a part two uh, where we're going to get into Earl's influences once he moved to L.A. in 1957 and why he did that and what was important about it. And um, he just exploded in so many different directions. So, again, um, a lot of these grooves are in my book. Uh, the Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming that I did with Zorro in 2009. A lot of these grooves are transcribed and performed uh, on the CD that goes with that book. You can learn more about them. And also what I was going to mention is make sure you like my Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page on Facebook. Uh, I'm posting, at the time of this recording, I am posting a, a video of Charles Connor with the Upsetter, so you can check him out doing his thing. Um, all right, very good. And I should mention that, unfortunately, because Earl was in the studio uh, during this whole period in time, there is very little footage of him actually playing in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, it's almost impossible to find because he was away in the studios and was not out there performing and not in the movies and not not doing the tours. So while that is a shame, uh, it is what it is, and we thankfully have a huge body of recorded work so that is fantastic all right keep grooving keep swinging and uh we'll talk to you next time take it easy